0: but we are, we are in the process of exploring for new space, so we ask that you would continue to pray for us as we look at options. Uh, obviously, the space is too small for us if you 're here for the first time we don 't want you to panic and be like hey i 'm not going to get a seat, but we are trying to look for new space, so we ask that you continue to pray that the Lord would open up something amazing, and we are working in those directions and hopefully in the pretty near future we 'll have something to be able to talk about and report we 're just we really feel called to be in this kind of community. We want to be right in the middle of the city, and we want to love people well. And so that's not quite so easy to find space that will hold all of us and then allow us to grow and do those kind of things. So we're working really diligent on, we ask, diligent on that. We ask you to pray, kind of continue to pray that God would open up some avenues that we were exploring and find some favor with some folks. And so um, that's what we'd ask you to pray for. So we're in the middle of a third week um, in a five-week series in the middle of the season of Lent. And those of you who've been coming, I won't do the full recap, but, but Lent is the season before Easter. It's the 40, day that leads, 40 days that lead up to Easter, not counting Sundays. It's kind of on a church calendar, supposed to call us to think about the death and, and lead us to the resurrection of Christ. It's to prepare us for all that transpires in that weekend. And we've attached a lot of things to it in our culture, whether you grew up in a, this background or that background, may mean one thing or another. But when you take all those things away, kind of Lent season is just about reminding us of who we are, our own sinfulness, our own, broke, our own brokenness, and our desperate need for a Savior. And so this season, I thought coming out of our study of the book of Ruth, which was like 15 weeks long, it would be a perfect time for us to kind of just focus on the person and the life and the death of Jesus. So leading up to Easter, we're exploring five truths about the death of Christ, all right, which is going to lead us to Easter Sunday, which we're going to explore the resurrection and all that life really kind of is through that promise. And um, kind of prevailing nature of God's God's grace. So we have two truths that we explored. The first one we opened up a few weeks ago was that the death of Jesus was for his enemies. And we talked about the fact that you and I, apart from Christ, are enemies of God. And in that state, as an enemy of God, we are powerless, we are ungodly, and we are sinful. And there is a penalty, a due penalty for that sin. We explored God's wrath and talked about how as enemies of of God as enemies of Jesus uh, without Jesus we deserve a certain punishment we talked about that and explored that and the truth is is that we didn't do anything to deserve it or uh, earn it and we talked about the death of Jesus being for his enemies and last week we talked about the fact that the death of Jesus was on our behalf all right we talked about these two things that really transpired in the death of when Jesus died on the cross. The first one was there was a magnificent exchange that took place, that, that Jesus took our place, that he took our sin and we took his righteousness, that God ordained before the beginning of time this magnificent exchange where Jesus literally became the sin that we were. And we became God's righteousness in Christ. And in that divine kind of, or that uh, magnificent exchange, there was a divine substitution. We talked about the fact that it was our lives that should have been hanging there on the cross. And that Jesus took our place. And we we explored that from this theological kind of concept that's called penal substitutionary atonement. And basically just means that, that Jesus bore our sin and took our place where you and I should have been. Kind of a deeper theological kind of window. Well, this week we've got, we're going to step out of that realm a little bit, but we're going to build on those truths, and we're going to talk about how the death of Jesus defines love. See, my whole goal for this series right, is not to just kind of overwhelm us with a little bit more kind of deep theological understandings of the cross, but really to help us deeply understand exactly what God did, how we were purchased and bought, because if we really know what transpired, then it changes the way that we worship. These songs no longer just become songs. My heart no longer just becomes something that I bring to worship. But every part of me gets poured into it because I realize what God did for me. That as a powerless, broken, sinful, kind of helpless person, God stepped in my place and saved me. And I did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Nothing. In fact, I deserve death and eternal separation from God. But he bought me with a price. It should change us. It should change how we think about church, how we think about worship, how we think about our very lives. By understanding the cross and the death of Jesus, it provides a new platform for us to have this authentic encounter with God authentic encounter and worship so that's my my whole goal is to provide kind of clarity and understanding so the death of jesus was for his enemies the death of jesus was on our behalf and this morning the death of jesus defines love so if you've got your bible i want you to go ahead and turn to book of first john not the gospel of john but farther back in the new testament the epistles of john there's three of them we're going to be in the first one chapter three so if you've got one right there there should be one close by you hey listen if you've got a bible bring it Alright, listen, here's the deal. No one's going to laugh at you or whatever. Hey, bring in your Bible to church. Look, this is what we do. We open it up, so bring one, alright? If not, keep this one. It's right there on that chair. Uh, take it with you. I don't care. Just keep it. Uh, put your name in it. Pretend it's yours. Pretend your mom bought it for you, whatever. It's yours. Hang on to it. But use it. Bring it. The reason it's, I'm saying that is because I want you to... As we unpack God's Word, I want you to see it. I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to mark it. I want you to go home and and rethink it. My whole counter is not that you hear me. Like, I could care less if you remember one single word that I say. But as we open God's Word and you have an encounter with God's Word, I deeply believe that's an encounter with God. So my goal is to introduce you into God's Word in a unique way. So bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, Take this one, we'd love for you to keep it. We'll be in it every single week. If we're ever not in it, if I ever don't use it, just get up and leave. You have my full permission to be like, dude, I'm out of here. Deuces, I find another church because this one's not in it. So that is the case. And you can even raise your hand and tell me. You're like, look, you said, man. And so we ever do that, which we won't, but if we do, full permission. So bring your Bible. <clears throat> All right, first John chapter three. Um, and we're gonna also be in four. So first John three and first John chapter four. So kind of get that page back and forth for those of you that kind of really need to know where we're going. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll dive into this together. God, I thank you for the opportunity just to slow down this morning for an hour or so and just sit in your presence. I thank you, Lord, that there are things to do today at noon and places to be and other things that we have going on. But for this moment, God, we just get to be together in your presence. Um, Father, no anxiety, no pressure, just sitting in this place opening your word and learning about what you did for us take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning through his word just God teach me something this morning take a moment and pray for someone beside you around you in front of you just pray that God would would move in them. I say this each and every week, just be in the habit of praying for other people. This thing is not just about you. Pray for other people. Pray that they would encounter God. Lord, we turn this entire morning over to you. I deeply believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Lord, you tell us that your word is is truth. And it is sharper than a double-edged sword, Lord, that it is literally breathed by you, um, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, it divides joints and marrow. God, you uh, speak to us through your word. And so I pray this morning as we open it, you would um, convict us where we need to be convicted, you'd encourage us where we need to be encouraged, you'd challenge us where we need to be challenged. But God, ultimately in these pages, what we do is we hear you and that you would whisper to us, Father, we know that only you reveal truth, so we ask you to reveal it to our hearts. We love you, we thank you so much for Jesus. Amen. So the love of, uh, the truth we're on today is that the, lo- the death of Jesus defines love. Now, I say that because a lot of times we think of the death of Jesus as an expression or as the example of love, but really it's, it's much more than that. It is, is the very definition of love. Without the death of Jesus, as we're going to see, we actually have no understanding of what love is. It becomes a definition, the foundation, the, the guiding principle by which all understanding of love can even happen. So the definition is defined by the death of Christ. But it goes a little bit farther because it's not just about defining it for us. Because this, this truth is actually something that calls us to be lived as well. So... Well, not only is the death of Jesus a defining nature of love, but it's the call for us to live that example to the world. So it's both the foundation and the very call, an example of love, and then a call to pour that out onto the world around us. So we're going to look at these verses, and then I'm going to kind of walk us through, and I want you to see a few things about this truth of love, about this definition of love. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to go in verse 16 through 19 first, and then we'll flip over to 1 John 4 in just a moment. So, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions, yet sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So, truth number three. The death of Jesus defines love. Now there's a few things I'm going to unpack in here that I want you to, to kind of see. And the first one is that the death of Jesus provides us with an understanding. Okay, So the death of Jesus provides us with an understanding. And it provides us with an understanding, first of all, of what love is. Now I mentioned this a second ago, but without the death of Jesus, we actually have no understanding of what love is. We have no framework, no foundation, no boundaries. We have nothing. We only have the human experience and what our feelings provide. But as you and I both know, those are very poor kind of boundaries for love. Because I can both love Dr. Pepper and I can love pancakes and I can love my wife and I can love Jesus. How can that really mean all these things? So what is love? What does it mean? How is it defined? Well, we read very quickly in 316 that this is how we know what love is. Right, so John says, "This is how we know what love is, because apart from it, you don't know that Jesus Christ, right, died for us as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Like Jesus died. This is how we know the death of Jesus provides the very definition of love. If you flip over to John four and look at verse ten, he says this, reiterates similar the same thing. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice for our sin." So both 16 and 10, 3 and 4, this is how we know what love is. This is love. The only expression that we actually have of understanding what love is comes and is wrapped up in the death of Jesus. Right. So it provides the framework by which we can define all understandings of love. Now that's important. I want you to hang on to it. So the death of Jesus provides us with an understanding of what love is. It also provides us with an understanding that love originates from God. All right. So look at this. Verse 19 of chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. So these chapters are kind of framing us a picture of what this love looks like. Now, God loved us first, so love originates with God, all right? We didn't love him, but it originates from him to us. Now, this is really important because we are not, the, humanity is not the creation of this thing called love, all right? It is not the place where it originates, and then therefore we have these feelings and, and kind of put it on to our God. But instead, Jesus, through his death and obedience on the cross, defines love in a love that originates with God, meaning you didn't do anything to start it. God loved you first. It's going to make sense in just a minute, I promise. The third thing I want you to see about this understanding is it is from God to us and not us to God. He says it right there in, in 416 where he says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us first. Now why is that important? Why is it important to know that love originates with God and that he loved us first? Because here's the thing. The death of Jesus was not a response to something you did, okay? You didn't love God. You didn't uh, kind, of, kind of live faithfully enough. Humanity didn't love God. Humanity didn't live faithfully enough. And God said, you know what? Man, humanity is so amazing and they are loving me so well and so faithful that I need to do something for them to save them from those other bad things they do. So I'm going to send my son Jesus as a response to their loving me well and they're loving me in a faithful way. That would be love originating with humanity, right? And it would be us loving God first and love coming from us. The truth is, it's exactly the opposite. We did absolutely nothing. The past two weeks, we've explored the fact that we were enemies, powerless, ungodly, and sinful. We deserved God's wrath and deserved to be separated from Him forever. But in the middle of all of that, in the middle of that state, God takes the initiative with us, and He says, I love you so much that you can do nothing to get yourself out of this because of the sin in your life. So I'm going to send my son Jesus. I'm going to send Him to you To die in your place is a substitution for you. See, love begins with God, goes to us, it originates with him, and it defines all other aspects of love. The death of Jesus provides an understanding of what love is. I cannot truly understand what it means to love my spouse if I don't understand what Jesus did for me. And I'm going to explain why in just a moment. But I want you to use this as your framework. A lot of you may say, oh, that can't be true, man. I love a lot of things. Look, here's the deal. The emotional side, reaction side of our heart and life, I I would argue is a poor definition and expression of what love is. Love is not rooted in a feeling or an emotion or any of those things. It is demonstrated and acted on through God, and then God gives a framework by which we understand it. Okay, so love, first of all, provides us with an understanding of what it is, right? Without Jesus' death on the cross, we actually don't have any framework. We use the same term for, like I said, loving pancakes, right? So without an understanding of what true love, Jesus did on the cross, we don't understand what true love is. So we have that. We also know that it originates with God, and it's from him to us and not us to him. In other words, you didn't do anything to earn it, and you never, ever could. Now hang on to that for a minute. So the first thing, the definition that we have is that it provides us with another understanding. The second thing we see is it provides us with a demonstration. Both of those verses, both uh, chapter 3, 10, or three sixteen and four ten, both say this: "This is how we know what love is." Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, verse ten of chapter four. Not that we did anything, but that He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So this love is tied to a demonstration. In other words, it's not merely words. God demonstrated how much he said he loved us by sending his son, Jesus. Two weeks ago, we explored Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This idea of love was tied to a demonstration. God didn't just look at humanity and say, hey, I love humanity. I love the creation that I breathed life into. And so I want you to know that. Just hear me say it. Love was tied to a demonstration. And God said, I love you so much that I will demonstrate it with this ultimate sacrifice of sending my son to die in your place. To literally become sin for you, as we talked about last week. Become sin for you so that in him you might become my glory. It was attached to a demonstration. We'll explore this in a moment. But the idea being is that words are one thing. But when you attach them to something that's, that's valuable and that has life and that is a movement, that is action oriented, it becomes alive. Because I can tell you I love you all I want, right? I can look at here and say, "Man, I love you guys." But if I don't demonstrate in that, in some form or fashion, they're just empty and hollow words, right? Any of you that have been in relationships on any level know this to be true. It doesn't have to just be with a person of the opposite sex. It can be in a relationship and a friendship. The truth is, is that when love is not demonstrated, it's just hollow. It's just words. I right? trust me on that. Part of us needs to see it and. That love of God, that the death of Jesus was attached to a demonstration. God said, look, I, I love you. I breathe life into you. I formed you. Psalm 139 says that God knit us together in our mother's wombs. And that love, that understanding was defined through the death of Christ, demonstrated while we were purely and totally sinful and unable to, to kind of redeem our own lives. So the death of Jesus provides us with an understanding. It provides us with a demonstration. Let's, uh, let's keep going. It also provides us with a call to replication. So look at this in verse, go to chapter 3 and look at verse uh, 16. We'll go out 16 down through 18. Or we'll start at 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we are called to lay down our lives for others. And then he gives a very specific example. So we've got an understanding of love, we've got a demonstration of love, and then we have this call to replication. That if you have been saved by the, the love of Christ, if you have surrendered your heart to Jesus, and you have been delivered from your death a sentence, literally substituted by Jesus, then you are now called to live that expression of love to the world around you. So there is an actual call to replication. There is a call to live differently. Now a couple things I want you to see about this call to live differently. One, the replication is not in act but sacrifice. So you're not actually called to die on the cross for everybody around you. So when Jesus says that because he died for us, when John says because Jesus died for us, we're called to lay down our lives for our friends. He's not actually saying, look, love your friends so much that you will physically be crucified for them right? It's not a call to the act, it's a call to the sacrifice. What was the root of the death of Jesus? It was sacrifice. You remember Jesus in the garden as he, as he, compl- he just pleaded with God and he said, God, listen, I know what's coming, Father, but if there is any way that you could take this from me, please, please do it, but not my will, what you want. Remember that? The idea being that it was an unbelievable sacrifice which Jesus voluntarily laid his life out for in obedience to the Father. It's a sacrifice. The death of Jesus is called a replication, is rooted in sacrifice. Do you sacrifice your life for the people around you? I would venture to say no. I would say you would do it like I would in moments when it's convenient. And most of the time it's for the people that we love. Spouses, children, lots of times for our children in that way. Like, I'll give up this for you or whatever. But it's always usually when it's super convenient. But there's something really convicting about these verses. That Jesus is kind of saying through John, like, look, I laid down my life for you, and I want you to lay down your life for the people around you in the same sacrificial way. Now think about the depth of the sacrifice that Christ made for you. When's the last time you loved someone with that kind of intensity and sacrifice? I was thinking about that last night, and I was thinking, well, probably never. But there's the call there for me. Like, it's a call to replication. So we've got this sense that I've got to lay my life down that's rooted in sacrifice. Now, the second thing about that is that it's rooted in compassion and grace. A lot of times, we'll sacrifice for people that have earned it. I mean, that have treated us well. You know, like, you kind of do something for me, and so I owe you, or, or you're really kind, or you're working hard, or you're doing your best, and so I, I've seen that, and so then I reply with grace and compassion, and I live sacrificially for you. Honestly, that's just how we do it. But that's not what took place for, with Christ in you, is it? You didn't do anything. You weren't living pretty good, and then God said, you know, you, that guy's giving his best effort. You know what, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, love him so much that I'll send Jesus to die for him. No, you were powerless, ungodly, and totally sinful. You were living absolutely 100% for yourself, and sin was pouring out of every part of your body. And Jesus loved you so much that he gave his life for you and for me. That's what we talked about when we talked about the substitution. You did nothing. If we're called to replicate that love, this definition, this understanding, this demonstration of love, if we're called to replicate it, why do we make people earn it? Why do we make them show us first before we pour out our love to them? Why do we have to see them come two steps before we come one step towards them? This is how we live. Show me your putting forth effort and I will meet you halfway. It's not really what the sacrificial love of Christ looks like. God didn't wait for us to meet him halfway. Hey, Trev, listen. Just clean your life up a little bit. Quit doing those two things. Stop doing this. Once you get yourself back to church, then I will meet you there. No way. Broken, sinful disaster. Psalmist says that God pulled me out of the pit, out of the mire, and out of my death. And he rescued me, and I did nothing to deserve it. What if we actually engaged in loving the people around us in that sacrificial way that said, I don't care how many steps you don't take, but I'm going to love you in that way. But he gives a very specific example, which no one really wants to hear, but this is what he says. Dear children, okay, well, he says this, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words uh, or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Love is an action. So we know that it's kind of rooted in sacrifice. It's driven by grace and compassion. But it's an action. And he gives a specific example. He says, listen up, church. Because he's talking to this group of gathered kind of believers. He says, listen, if any, anybody around you, any of your brothers, right, any of the people that you're connected with, any of these people in this thing called family, which he's not talking about kind of related blood family, but any of these kind of connected people that, that you are around, your life, Brothers, followers of Christ, any of them has nothing. They are out of possessions or they are going without. And you have things and you don't have compassion on them. How is God's love in you? Now this is one of those things that we read in scripture and we say, yeah, I mean that was great for them back there. But surely God's not actually calling me to live this way. It's like those verses in Acts where it says the believers got all together and they shared everything. And if somebody had a need, another person took a piece of land and they sold it and they gave it so that everybody could have something. That worked like 2,000 years ago, but I'm not about to do that today because surely that's not what God's really asking of me. He's not really asking me to give away my things and give stuff to other people, is He? I mean, you're not asking that of me, Trev, are you? Really? I mean, I'm comfortable. I don't have much. I mean, I've only got a couple hundred bucks or a couple thousand or whatever it is and and until I get to a certain place. Then I don't feel comfortable just giving because we give out of the abundance. If I have extra, I give to you. That's how we're taught all of our lives. I have two, I keep one for me, I give one to you. But we only give out of the abundance. Giving out of abundance requires zero sacrifice. What do I give? I just give you what I don't need. You know how many times I get called, hey Treb, listen, here's the deal, I got some old stuff in my garage, I think I want to give it to the church. It's great. And if I'm talking about you, don't be offended. Like the reality is it happens all the time. I've got some old stuff, And I feel really bad hanging on to it, and I don't want to throw it in the trash, so I give it to you because it's extra and it's abundance, and then I've got to redistribute your old stuff. And somebody might need your old stuff, so I'm not putting that down, but I'm just saying that's our response. I'm going to give out of my abundance, but that abundance requires no sacrifice. And actually, I get this, come and pick it up, so I don't actually have to take it anywhere. Do me a favor. Does Jesus really actually call us to give out of our things to the people around us that have needs? I would venture to say it's hard to read the Bible and not see it. And we can ignore it, but it's really hard to see it. Why? Because love is demonstrated by Christ. It's rooted in this sort of compassion and grace, and it calls us to sacrifice and replicate it. So what if that was the call, that love became an action, to not love with tongue and words, but an action in truth? I literally am the world's greatest lover. I'll leave that at that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm the world's greatest lover with words, (laughs) right? World's greatest lover with words. I will tell you all the time, right? But when it comes to living those things out, like most of us, there's a huge disconnect. Huge disconnect. We say the right things, but they don't match with how we live. Because like most of us, I hate sacrifice. Right here we're hearing that love is an action and it can't take place in tongue and words. In other words, quit saying you love people. I would challenge you to quit saying you love people until you're willing to back it up with how you live. I could tell Meredith all I wanted that I loved her. I could just say, man, to my wife, I love you, I love you, I love you. And if my life didn't replicate it, it is hollow and empty. If God looked at us and he said, listen, Trevor, I am desperately in love with you as my creation, the creation that I breathe life into, that I formed, that I made, I loved you. And I know that you are going to die in your sin, but know that I love you. And that he didn't send his son Jesus as the substitution for my sin. What good is it simply to know that God says he loves me? But God demonstrated his love with a movement of sacrifice. Substituting Jesus' life for mine. We look at people all the time and we say, I love you. But I'm not going to do what it would take to sacrifice for you until you earn it, until you work for it, until you show me that you're not going to throw my money away, my stuff away, my things away. And they meet us halfway, and then we engage them and give out of our abundance, and that's just the truth. And if you're offended, I am sorry, but it is true. So what if the definition of love, the death of Jesus, this defining nature of love, not only changed what we understood about the cross, but it changed how we lived. What if it was our call? Now, let me tell you something to end this this, with this really incredible specific thing. So listen to what happens in verse 19. This then, of chapter 3, is how we know that we belong to truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So when we engage in love this way... When we understand the definition of love, right, the definition and understanding that it was from God to us, it originated with Him, that it is a very expression of love, that it's a demonstration, that we are called to replicate it and live it in this sacrificial, driven by love and compassion specific way. What if when we understood that, when we demonstrated it, when we engaged it, John tells us something very specific transpires. Listen to what transpires when we do this. This then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we, are set our, how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. When we truly understand these things and we begin to replicate them the way that Christ did for us, two things happen. One, we know that we belong in the truth. When we are secure in understanding that Jesus died for us, gave his life for us, and that I am saved, that I have been bought with a price, and that my life is no longer mine, but it belongs to Jesus, when I surrender my heart, and we talked about this week one, I have confidence in that, and then I begin to live that out, I know that I belong in the truth. You know what that is? It's peace. Living this way leads to peace. When you have knowledge that you belong to Jesus, you know what that is? Confidence and peace. Look, my life isn't mine. It doesn't belong to me. I was purchased. So no longer do I have to fight God for control over these things. But when I understand this and I live it, it leads to peace. Most of us are living in a state of constant, kind of a constant lack of peace. We are wanting and longing for it all the time. God, give me a peace about this. Give me a peace about this. Show me this. Demonstrate this to me. You know what John's saying? John's saying when you truly understand love, the demonstration that Christ did for you on the cross, the atoning sacrifice that you were bought and dead and did nothing to earn it, but God loved you so much and you begin to live that way, you know what it leads to? It leads to peace. That does not make sense from a worldly standpoint. But it leads to peace. You know what else it leads to? Look at that other word. It leads to rest. And this is how we know and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Most of us live in a constant state of restlessness. We are busy and our lives are chaos, whether it's family, work, whatever it is. We are going from one thing to another, to another, to another, hoping for just a small break on the weekend, which never happens. So we plan vacations and give us incentives, but you know what, whenever we get back from those things, the same life exists. And we think somehow that rest means doing less. The truth is, rest is spiritual. I deeply believe it. And we're clamoring to find rest in all the wrong places, thinking that if I can just sleep more, just quit doing more, just these things, then I'll feel better. The reality is that your rest is spiritual in nature. That our hearts aren't at rest within us. So how is the rest of our life supposed to fall in line? Until we find peace and rest in our hearts, our world's going to always exist in chaos. Well, I think what John is saying here is he's saying this, look. When you understand these things, when you live this demonstration, when you truly believe what Jesus did for you, right, and you recognize that your life isn't yours, and you begin to replicate that out by saying, God, my life and my stuff don't belong to me, they belong to you, and I'm going to freely give because I know you are God that provides. It leads to peace, and it leads to rest. We find rest in his presence. This was so convicting to me because I didn't want to believe it for a second. But as I spent time with this this week, this is what God just kept showing me over and over again is that my lack of peace and my lack of rest is really driven by the fact that I have yet to really engage and understand the depth of what God did for me and the call he has for me to live that out. And if I could put my feet in the middle of that and say, Jesus, I I get that I did nothing and that you bought me and purchased me and that your love is what encapsulates me and calls me to live differently. And I want to put my feet in it and realize that all of my stuff, from my bank account to my children, don't belong to me. They belong to you. And I let go and I just say, my life is yours. Call me where to, Tell me where to put it. It leads to peace, trust, and it leads to rest in your soul. So this morning, if you're sitting here and you're gathered and you're going, man, Peace and rest, those are two things that I don't have. I venture to ask you, have you really understood what transpired in the death of Christ? The deep theological nature of your purchased life. And the call for you to put that in motion, to live in sacrifice. Deep. And it's messy. And I know you don't want to hear it. I don't either. But I desperately want peace and rest. And I want it spiritually. So what if I understood and began to live what I understood? It's a call for all of us. The death of Jesus was for his enemies. It was on your behalf, and it is the very definition of love. Next week, we're going to talk about how the death of Jesus is about reconciliation, both for us and our call to be reconciled to other creation in the world, um, whether that's races or other things. So we'll be exploring that. Each month, we take a moment, and we just offer some prayer needs up together. Uh, We just spend a little bit of time. As you've got things going on that you'd like to pray for, we just sort of holler them out, and I jot them down, and then we pray for them together as a as a way of saying, "Look, we are knit together as a community." Um, it's easy to slip in here and slip out, but if you have something going on in your life, what I do is I just uh, take this little piece of paper here, and I jot them down, and uh, then we pray for them together, and then we close our time in uh, in worship. So.